I'm Naomi Klein, and I am at Navarra Media right now, having just done a wonderful in-depth interview. And this is why I love Navarra Media. And I listen regularly and watch to find out what the hell is going on in the UK. It is so critical to have independent media that we can trust, that goes deep on the issues and also lets people stay up on the day-to-day twists and turns. It's going to be especially important for your next election. So I'm incredibly grateful that Navarra Media exists and it exists because people support it. So make sure to support Navarra Media. We need left institutions and that means that we have to support them when they're doing such great work as Navarra Media is. Thanks. What does it take for us to become adults? I was joined by Blind Boy, author, podcaster, artist, to talk about how cultivating compassion, reflective understanding, and the careful study of history can take us away from being reactive, traumatized beings towards being well, fully-fledged humans. And just so you know, this is one of the most wide-ranging discussions I've ever had on Downstream. We cover everything from M&M to the Irish connection to Palestine, all the way to why dogs aren't real, plus his new collection of short stories, Topographica Hibernica. So stay tuned. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm in my late 30s now, and the clothes that are fashionable are what was fashionable when I was 17. And over lockdown, I decided, like, it was when we ended lockdown, I was like, okay, I'm gonna up, I'm gonna update my wardrobe. I'm gonna update my wardrobe now and I'm gonna, I'm gonna wear what's fashionable because skinny jeans aren't in anymore. So Mm -hmm. I wore, I wore baggy blue Dickies jeans. I wore a white t shirt. And then I was having a bit of mental health issues at the time. So I dyed my hair blonde underneath the bag and I went out and had a pint. And this, this dude of about 20 approached me in the smoking area and said, oh, is there a play on or something? Is there a play on nearby? I'm like, what do you mean? Is there a play on? And he's like, oh, you're dressed like Shim, Slim Shady. Are you, are you performing as Eminem in something? It was one of the most embarrassing things that had ever happened in my life because I'm there in my 30s and I'm like, all oh, right, I've gotten it wrong. And there's a dude of about 23 and he's not picking on me. He's not being mean. He legitimately thought that I had dressed like Eminem circa 1998 and I looked into the mirror and it's what I'd done, you know? But and, also, and if was... you weren't having a mental health crisis before, <laughs> that would really tip you over the edge. Well, I, I, I say mental health crisis. I was, I was having a bit, of, a bit of anxiety and a bit of depression and you know, sometimes when that happens, you feel uh, the first thing to do is you get a new haircut. You know what I mean? Mm. So I said, maybe if I bleach my hair, I feel better. It didn't work. People thought I was trying to be Eminem. I think, I think that, I mean, I remember, I remember Eminem just like being massive because that's when I was at school mm-hmm. and I feel that white people, white men had a very particular relationship with Eminem. There was something about Eminem that made them feel like, not, not like they were the man, like it wasn't quite like a Fred Durst kind of thing, but it mm-hmm. was just like that they were okay, that like rap and hip hop and indeed black people didn't have to be frightening for them anymore and there was just like a sort of window where like you know Marshall Mathers really like cranked open for them and then I think maybe it closed again well I, re- I remember it at the time because I would have been a teenager and before Eminem like being a white rapper was the most uncoolest thing imaginable I mean the last person before that was Vanilla Ice 
So when Eminem came out rapping, and I remember too, when I was a teenager and I first heard Eminem, I, I couldn't I couldn't relate to a huge amount of, we'll say, what Ice Cube was rapping about. You know, I couldn't relate to Ice Cube's experiences. I could view it from the outside and, and appreciate it. But then Eminem came along and he was he was rapping about being bullied in school and stuff, you know, and that for me, like his first album, that's what made me go, wow, this is this is ra-. he 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 did in an ex- it, to, to a certain extent. He didn't pretend to be something he wasn't, you know what I mean, the, the, to, to rap with skill about I'm being bullied at school and to be vulnerable. That did at the time I went, wow, OK, this feels pretty cool. This feels authentic. Whereas Vanilla Ice didn't feel authentic at all. I think I think there's something about Eminem, which is that he always seemed to be like flipping around the three points of mania, anxiety, depression. And you could see like it was like these EQ levels in his music, like mm-hmm. which one was going to be turned up. Well, he was always struggling, too, with addiction issues behind it all as well. He had pretty bad issues with uh, alcohol and pills you know, but for me, I'm one of these purists. I just like his first album, you know, but even now looking back, Jesus Christ, couldn't release that now. Fucking hell. Wow. I remember, I remember like this was not the first album. This was sort of like, I don't know. It was like a real, like it was a crap album. It was like that song. It was like called like ass like that or something. It was about like oh, yeah. waiting for Hillary Duff to turn 18. Yeah. And I just sort of like, it's just like I was reminded of it the other day and I was just like oh no wonder like me and every woman I know of my age so anyone who's sort of like late 20s to early 30s like we've got a really weird relationship to our bodies the male gaze and being objectified because Mm -hmm. it just felt like it was like there was like a like baying wolves at the door and at one point you were going to be, you know, just, just chucked out in front of them and you'd no longer have the protection of your house. And that house was, you know, being under the age of consent. Not that mm-hmm. you, you were actually protected by it, because also if you're aware your whole life that there are walls at the door, how safe are you really? But just that, that media culture of being like, okay, once you turn 18. Like, and that was the same time as well, Ash, where you had, I think it was The Sun, was it, where like counting down when Charlotte Church would turn 18 and you had that just all out in the public, completely normalised as part of culture. I mean, I guess for me, it's like, I know what it's like to have been a woman growing up mm-hmm. in all of that. But what was it like to be a boy, a teenage boy, a young man growing up in an environment where that's what you were being told sexuality was about? You didn't really question it. You kind of accepted it as, oh, this is normal. This is how things are supposed to be. And because that system kind of benefits towards men, we had no reason to question it. It's just like, oh, this is how things are. You know, Um, even when I, if I listen back to like Eminem or a lot of the rap music I was listening to as a teenager and just the sheer complete and utter normalized misogyny and violence towards women that's in it. And I just listened to that and went, oh, okay, this, this must be okay. Cause I'm a kid. I'm a child, teenager. And I'm like, well, if the adults are, you know, doing this and if it's all over the newspapers, then this just must be okay. This just must be how it is. And I never had no reason to really question it because I'm benefiting from that system, you know? I mean, you say benefiting, but one of the things that's quite striking about listening to your podcast and, and the way in which you talk about, mental health and meditation is that 
I've heard you talk about meditation giving you this kind of place of emotional safety. And that's not mm -hmm. something which I often hear from men, the need for safety and the way in which men don't have it. They're not socialized to feel safe and secure. And they're, they're socialized in a way that to say, I need to feel safe. I'm longing for a sense of safety. It's to be not masculine. It's just not an acceptable register for men to speak in. Well, for me over the years, so I've been to a lot of therapy and I also, I, I trained to be a psychotherapist myself at one point in my life. And when I address mental health, I often find that I've never learned anything useful from my life uh, about gender expectations. There's nothing, anything that's about how a man should be is, has never been useful for me. Instead, what I focus on is how an adult should be. I take gender out of it. And for me to be an effective adult, I have to be assertive. I have to be compassionate. I have to have access to, my, to empathy, um, intrapersonal empathy. So understanding my own emotions and understanding the emotions of other people. And when I speak about, like I meditate to feel, to feel safe, to feel emotionally regulated, to feel a calmness. And you have to kind of really accept vulnerability in order to do that. And when I mean accept vulnerability, you get a lot of it from acknowledging I'm insecure. Sometimes I get jealous of other people. Sometimes I'm envious of other people. Sometimes other people's success or what someone else has can make me feel angry because I'm envious of it. And by acknowledging and accepting those things, then I can quieten them. You know, it's, it's when I... When I ignore them, then they become problems. So emotional safety for me means getting to that point where I can look at the things like jealousy, things like envy, things like my own insecurity, feeling less than another person or wanting to feel more than someone else. These are difficult emotions to, to process. So I want to feel safe enough that I can let these things in and observe them so that I'm not reacting to them. Good mental health for me is when I'm not emotionally reactive. When emotions occur, but they don't drive my behavior because I'm observing them and I'm not reacting to them. And that for me, that, that's to be, an, to be an adult. An adult is somebody who is not emotionally reactive. Someone who can observe their emotions and, and regulate those emotions. You know what I mean? Was it frightening at first to drop down into that place of vulnerability and to look at your emotions and what was driving you because I mean just just speaking personally I'm terrible at meditation because mm -hmm. I feel in order to survive and mm -hmm. in order to have the resilience to cope with the job that I do mm -hmm. I can't drop down into a place of vulnerability because that would mean dropping oh. all of the adaptive mechanisms that keep mm -hmm. me alert and keep me if not feeling safe then literally alive and so you've got useful defense mechanisms. It feels terrifying, mm -hmm. you know, terrifying the idea of um, peeling off those layers to uh, accept vulnerability in that way. I mean, for me, that, that was part of the process. Like, I've also recently been diagnosed with autism, right? So I, I'm an autistic person. So I, I kind of, I have to be emotionally regulated. I, uh, mental health for me, it's very, very important for me to 
consistently at all times to be engaging with mental health dialogue, looking after myself, because as someone who's autistic, I, I, can, I can veer off the edge very quickly. I can find myself getting a little bit more emotionally reactive if I don't mind myself. And the process of... Like, I used to have anxiety that was so bad, like in, in my late teens, that I couldn't leave the house. I had agoraphobia. And I had to confront that in therapy because at the time I was lucky. I was in art college and therapy was free. So I was able to get free therapy in college. And... I gradually kind of confronted my anxiety. I confronted, you know, what did I feel insecure about? What was I afraid of? What, what, what are my fears? And it's a very painful thing to peel those things off, as you said. But I eventually got there. And it's about observing. It's, it's, I'm never going to be someone who's free from anxiety. I'm never going to be someone who's kind of free from depression. Those things are always going to be there. But what I try is I try to skillfully develop a practice whereby I can witness and observe these things and not react to them. If I'm not emotionally reactive, then I'm in a good place. And, and suffering, so, so, like bad shit's always going to happen. You know, I can't control the future. Bad shit is always going to jump out at me. But what I do have control over is how I react to that bad shit. So that's, and when I say bad shit, what I mean is rejection, disappointment, emotions like anger, envy. These things are always going to be present. So, but I do have control over how I react to them. But I can only be in control of how I react to them if, if I'm emotionally regulated, if I'm calm. And I, I, I'm lucky as well because I had a pretty happy childhood, you know. I had a pretty happy childhood. And when you have a happy childhood... And like, it doesn't feel strange for me to, to love myself. You know what I mean? Um, I, I, I do deep down believe that I, I'm deserving of love and to love myself. And that's because that was modeled to me as a child. My parents really, really did love me. Some people struggle with a lot. Of, some people are unsure whether they're worthy of love. Some people might have had parents who were really stressed out for whatever reason. You know what I mean? So those early childhood experiences of, of knowing that I'm receiving unconditional love from my parents, those things are standing to me now as an adult. So I kind of, I kind of acknowledge that. Is there a relationship between the state of reflectiveness that happens in meditation and the state of, I guess, creative reflection required for writing fiction? Because I just read, um, your collection of short stories, um, uh, Hibernian topography. And mm -hmm. I just, I was so interested in those narrative voices that were in there. And I was sort of wondering mm -hmm. what kind of emotional state you are as the writer when you're channeling that to write it. So w when I, when I write, what I'm looking for is, is a, the state of creative flow and creative flow is a bit like, it's like a skillful type of daydreaming, you know, and Mindfulness and meditation and, and being mentally healthy, they're, they're hugely important parts of, of achieving creative flow. For me to achieve creative flow, I, I have to be playful. Like, all of us, I won't say all of us, but most of us achieve creative flow as kids when we're playing with like Lego. When we're like three or four years of age, um, when you're playing with Lego at that age, you're not really thinking about whether it's going to be good or bad. You're just playing with Lego for the sake of playing. And then as you get older, you go to school 
and then you realise some people are better at making Lego than others and your own internal critical voice comes in. So if I'm creating anything, like I'm writing a short story, I have to be very mindful of my internal critical voice. And this internal critical voice is, could be teachers who were mean to me when I was a kid. It could be uh, one of my parents or an older sibling who might have been critical to me when I was younger. When I'm creating, these internal voices come up in me that are like, this has to be very good. This has to be brilliant. Or if this is shit, you'll be, you're a terrible person if this is shit and you need to give up. All of this stuff comes up. And the only way around that is, is playfulness. Because with playfulness, there's no good or bad. So when I try to write, I write for the joy of writing. I'm not writing because I want to write a good story. I'm writing because I love writing right now and it feels amazing. And I want to explore the dream world of my characters. I want to have fun with this. And if I can do that in a mindful way, it tends to turn into a story that's quite good. But if I sit down and go, I'm going to write a good story today, then I'm fucked. Like one of the things um, that comes up through the short stories is this this theme of the relationships between humans and animals. So there's mm-hmm. donkey in the first story, there's kittens in the second story, mm-hmm. uh, there are jackdaws. Mm-hmm. Um, where did that interest in, yeah, the the connections between humans and animals come from for you? So there's a number of themes I'm exploring in, in the book. Um, one of them is, so the book is called Topographia Hibernica. And there's another... Oh, sorry, I completely fucked up the title. I, I look, it's Latin, it's right easy to fuck up. Um, but the, it, it's called Topographia Hibernica. But there was also a document, a manuscript written in the 11th century called Topographia Hibernica. And this manuscript, when Britain, they were the Normans at the time, were colonising Ireland... A fella called Gerald of Wales, Geraldus of Wales, who would have, we're talking 1186 here. It's like 100 years after 1066. So the Normans are well established now in England and now they're colonising Ireland. And what England did is they sent a dude over to Ireland called Geraldus of Wales. And they said to Geraldus, create a topography of Ireland. Find out what the people are like, the stories. But really what the original Topographia Hibernica was it's like the first British tabloid. It's this incredible document. That's a, it's a load of lies about Ireland. Gerald did listen to some local folklore and he had a little look around Ireland. But really what he was writing was a document that dehumanised the Irish and made us animals so that we could be effectively colonised. I mean, it reminded me a hell of a lot of like the weapons of mass destruction. You know, when Britain and America wanted to invade Iraq And they were like, how do we fabricate this great big reason, this big threat that we can colonize this this uh, country, Iraq? And Topographia Hibernica from 1186 is like that. And you get amazing stories in there. Like Gerald was saying how the Irish would, the kingship ritual, how a king was made in Ireland. Gerald said this prospective king would have sex with a horse. Then he'd kill the horse with a hatchet. Then he would get the horse that he just fucked and, and, and caught up and put it into a big vat. And then the prospective king would, would boil himself in a soup with horse meat that he just fucked. And then everyone would eat from it. And it's this fantastic dehumanizing story about how the Irish are actually animals and how our relationship with Christianity. Because one of the things with 
something that's quite beautiful about Ireland is in like the 500s at the time when the Roman Empire was collapsing Rome never the, the Romans never came to Ireland so we had received Christianity but because Rome wasn't kind of overseeing Irish Christianity we managed to take Christianity and mix it with our indigenous mythology and create something that was quite beautiful and artistic and you get these lovely uh, illuminated manuscripts from this and this is why Ireland is called the lands of, land of saints and scholars but when the Normans came to Ireland the Brits to colonise Ireland they said oh god look what they're doing with the Bible they're after fucking up the Bible because we had introduced our indigenous mythology into it so what, the reason I call the Topographia Hibernica is I'm fascinated with how Britain described the Irish as animals as a way to colonise us and you can see that theme all the way up to the 1970s with how the British would portray Irish people in cartoons as monkeys and this dehumanisation and turning the people into animals as a way to colonise but also I looked at this book in relationship with the crisis of biodiversity you know because colonisation destroys biodiversity like Ireland used to be an, a, 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 an Atlantic rainforest but when Britain colonised us they removed all of our wood because that's what colonisation does it, it, it extracts the natural resources from the area um, our native wolf was killed by Oliver Cromwell you know so we have biodiversity collapse happening at the same time so I'm just fascinated by Colonization, biodiversity collapse. I'm, I'm kind of poking at these themes and what is the line between human and animal? And that's why in, in each of these stories, I have humans and animals. The blur, the line between both of them kind of blurred. And it's, I, I got kind of fascinating results. Like the story you mentioned there about the cats. So I have this story called the pistols of the dandelions. And it's just about a family of cats living in an industrial estate in Limerick, the city that I'm from. And I went down to a cat's eye view to write this story. And what I found was really fascinating is when you write a piece of fiction from the point of view of a stray cat in any city or Ireland, it becomes Blade Runner. It becomes sci-fi. They, they live in, in the world of, of kind of societal collapse that's ahead of humanity. Cats are already living it, you know what I mean? They don't have any natural there's no, there's nothing they can eat they're reliant upon food from humans nature is completely gone and when you go down to their world it, it's mad max it's blade runner and i found that really fascinating um one of the things that was so striking for me about the donkey in the first short story um was this sense of connection between the narrator and the donkey and mm -hmm. the way in which the suffering of this donkey allows the narrator to unlock what's going on in terms of how he feels about his, his father. He's in a home, mm -hmm. I guess, with dementia or mm -hmm. Alzheimer's or, or, or degenerative uh, neurological disease of some, some sort. And I suppose I actually find it difficult to look at donkeys. I find it difficult mm -hmm. to, to look them in the face because there's something about their faces. I feel like it contains all of the wounds of the world. Yeah. There's something about donkeys and I feel feel yeah. that they are looking at us with all the suffering that mm -hmm. that we as humans cause like i don't know if that sounds really like mad no i completely but understand i mean yeah donkeys are special in that way i mean when you're with a horse horses they have a majesty to them 
and we have a respect for horses, you know, like even there when I, when I mentioned Geraldus of Wales and when he spoke about the kingship ritual of, of Irish people, that the Irish people eat and have sex with horses, like the reason Geraldus was saying that was because the Gregorian reforms had happened about 60 years previously, which was the, the eating of horse meat, the Catholic Church had decided around 1060, I think, the eating of horse meat was considered to be the mark of a savage pagan people because horses at that time were being used by colonists all over Europe. Like, this is how you win wars. You ride horses, you treat them with respect. They're almost human and we elevate horses to that level. We don't do that with donkeys. Donkeys... Like donkeys are beautiful. They're beautiful animals and they're very cute. They're very, very cute. And we often don't allow ourselves to appreciate that cuteness because donkeys effectively, they're not about cuteness. They're beasts of burden. Um, now donkeys aren't beasts of burden, not, not in, in, in the global north, but donkeys now, if you ask someone, why did you buy a donkey? They buy them to keep them as companions for horses. So sometimes horses get lonely. So you buy him a donkey to be their friend. And that's the main purpose of donkeys now. But the odd time in Limerick City, where I'm from, where there's a lot of horses and donkeys. We kind of have horses the way that other places would have stray dogs. And you will see donkeys selling Christmas trees and stuff. And that's what that story is about. It's about at Christmas time where sometimes donkeys are used on the side of the road and they put little Christmas hats on them and they're there as like advertisements to sell these Christmas trees on the side of the road. But those donkeys, they're always freezing and shivering. And the story I have, it's kind of half based on a true story. My art teacher, when I was in secondary school, he saw a donkey on the side of the road being beaten and he couldn't stand it. So he bought the donkey and shoved it into the back of his car. But then Sue realised that the donkey couldn't really fit and he had to drive all over town with this giant donkey and his face stuffed up and he ended up frightening a lot of people because it didn't even look like a car anymore. It looked like a strange metal thing full of meat and fur. You know? I mean, <laughs> I, th I think there's, there's something about that, that image of like the beaten donkey in the elf's hat, which again, it's... It, activate this feeling within me about how difficult it is sometimes to look indignity in the face, mm -hmm. to look at the indignity of others and the way in which it reflects back on you. And I suppose for me, the like imaginative twin to the beaten donkey in the elf's hat, the side of the road selling mm -hmm. Christmas trees is very often in central London tube stations like Victoria or Westminster mm -hmm. or Euston, you would see South Asian men very mm -hmm. often Bangladeshi wearing kind of like head to toe plushy outfits, like a bunny or mm -hmm. a Pokemon or something. And they're there and they're just like shaking mm -hmm. buckets for change and I remember going through a station and seeing this, you know, he's like six foot four. He's like a tall Bengali man and he's dressed up like the Easter bunny and it's not Easter and it's raining mm -hmm. outside. So the, the, you know, dirty city water from all the puddles is like, like mm -hmm. traveling up the, the fluffy feet of this outfit. And I think there was something about that for me, which was about the, indignity of the conditions we force immigrants to in this country of England, people from the country that we colonized 
and thinking about that dehumanization, the rendering of people into animals that takes on this horrible literal quality. And I guess, I guess I found it hard to look at in my own, in my own way. I sort of, you know, saw someone who's got the same ethnic background as my own and, and it's almost like physically difficult to look at. Well, something I was definitely exploring in that story, Ash, was how we have to look away from things in order to live in a modern city. So my character in this story, the donkey's on the side of the road. And the reason I put the donkey on the side of the road is because cars are stuck in traffic and the cars refuse to look at this donkey. But this one man decides, no, I'm actually going to rescue this donkey today. Now, we have to do that all the time with homeless people. There's homeless people all over Limerick, where I'm from, all over Ireland. Same thing in England. In order to live in a city, you kind of have to look past quite a lot of homeless people. And then there's the question of altruism. The character in this story helps the donkey, but you're wondering, is it really, is he really helping him for to help that donkey, he's not. But what, what the character is doing is, at the same time, his father is has dementia up in a hospital. And what the character is trying to do in that story is, he wants to give himself an excuse to never go and see his father again. He wants to, and ironically, I actually got that fucking idea from watching a documentary about Jimmy Savile. Jimmy Savile... This, I was watching a documentary about Jimmy Savile and something that really, really stuck out for me as particularly fucked up was it appears that Jimmy Savile did these horrible, awful things and then would internally balance it out with acts of charity as if he was thinking about what do I say to God at the pearly gates? Like he had a balance sheet and I just thought, wow, that's fucked up. And it stuck with me. And then I thought to myself, sometimes people who have parents who have dementia and the parents don't recognise their, their children anymore, some people just stop going to visit them. They just stop. They don't turn up anymore because the parents don't recognise them anymore. And I just wanted to think, what's going on internally in a person who makes that decision? And my character in this story, they're not rescuing a donkey to save a donkey. They're rescuing the donkey so that they can say, I did a really good thing. I rescued a poor donkey and therefore it's okay for me to never ever visit my father who's dying from Alzheimer's, you know? And it's about that altruism. Even for me, like, I, I walk past homeless people. That's, I live in a city where there's a lot of them. So I do walk past homeless people. But sometimes I don't. Sometimes I give them money. I offer them uh, f to buy them food. And I do that. I do it frequently. But then when I do that, I have to ask myself, why am I doing this? Do I literally want to help this person? Or is it, is there something more internally selfish going on? Like when I do help a homeless person and buy them lunch and do something like that. Yes, it's a compassionate act for another person. But also I take away from that a little feeling that it's easier for me to sleep tonight. I'm taking, there, there's a, there's an exchange. It's, it's, it's almost like I'm going to buy you a sandwich and help you. And the transaction that I get is I get to walk away now and feel like a good person. And there's something so transactional about that. And then it makes me wonder, was that real empathy on my part? Was I doing that? Was I thinking about 
What does it mean for this person for me to buy them this sandwich? What does it mean for this person for me to give them these gloves? And it's something I actively work on. I actively work on it. And when I say gloves there, I bought a homeless person gloves last week. And I bought them these gloves because I thought about their hands. It wasn't about, like I actively mindfully said, I'm going to help this person now. And it's not so that I get to feel like a good person. It's, I, I noticed and felt the cold. It was fucking freezing. And I looked at that person and I said, they don't have any gloves and they're sitting outside all day long. My God, imagine I bought them gloves. What would that do for them? Imagine the difference that would make in their day. And that, that, that felt for me a bit more compassionate because what I'm doing there is, is genuinely responding to a person's needs. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense, Ash? It does. It does. It does make sense. And I suppose distinguishing between like transactional acts of aid and empathetic acts of aid the transactional mm-hmm. acts of aid is about how do i feel after this is done yeah or the there's other people who just aid. put it on instagram which is that's yeah. quite obvious like you know fuck that that's absolutely horrible but for me it's much more it's 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 the transaction of i'm not going to brag about that i helped the homeless person but still there's something a little bit selfish going on here you know, and I, I don't like, I like to investigate that. I like to investigate that. I, I don't want to help a homeless person because it makes me feel like a better person. There's something not right about that. I want to help a homeless person because I'm compassionately using what I have to help them meet their needs better. You know what I mean? One of the things that stuck out for me in one of the short stories that the short story which is sort of concerned with sin and it starts with this little boy who's making up sin so he's got something to tell the priest and then is committing sin so that the sins that he says um aren't lies and then the shift from going okay well i don't i don't believe in the priestly confession anymore i want Mm -hmm. the therapeutic confession um it maybe seemed to me that this showed that are you a bit suspicious of of people who are set up to tell you that you're a good person and that you can be absolved? So you can be absolved if you if you say all this number of Hail Marys, or you can be absolved if you if you blame your mother enough for not having been you know present enough as a baby. That there's this sort of ickiness that you've got towards someone saying, "Okay, you're you're fixed, you're good." Definitely, you're because like like I, I, I so I I'm an elder millennial Irish person. And what makes that kind of strange is like I grew up with, with the, the very end of hardcore Catholicism. That was literally part of my childhood. Now, someone in their 20s, they wouldn't have had that. But I did. I did grow up having to get confession, communion. I did grow up at three years of age and all my teachers were nuns. And they're trying to tell me at three years of age what a sin is. And they're trying to explain to me that I'm eating the body and blood of Christ. And a lot of that is autobiographical. One of the toughest things about being a kid in that system as a, as a, when I was a child was when I'm seven, I don't have any fucking sins. Like a, a seven-year-old cannot sin. There's no way for a seven-year-old to do anything that's evil or bad. It's just a seven-year-old figuring things out. Seven-year-olds can steal. They can do things that are against the rules. They can piss people off. But none of that is bad. That, that's a natural part of being a human and learning but we were told straight up no 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 this is a sin and something that really stuck with me when I was a kid 
I'd been really bald in school. I don't think you say bald in England. I'd, be, I'd been misbehaving quite a bit. I now realise as an adult, I was an autistic kid. So mm. when you're autistic in school, you need to move around a lot. You ask a hell of a lot of questions. And this is very quickly called misbehaving. Um, so I, I was a troublesome, troublesome student. And one day, when I was about seven years of age, we were just about to make our first confessions. And our first confession is, is the first time you sit in a confession box with a priest and you just tell this stranger that's hidden behind the box all your fucking secrets and all the bad things you've done. And then what they do is they they use the power of God to clean your soul. And this was school. This was normal. This was fucking school. And I'd been really misbehaving. And what my teacher did is they took me to the top of the class and they got a jam jar, an empty jam jar and filled it with water. And they said, this is your soul. It's clean. And then they went to a flower pot and they put in a lot of dirt. And now my soul was really dirty. And I said, that's your soul right now. Unless you go to confession, it won't be clean again. And that psychological abuse of a child. I now look back and I go, what a deeply fucked up thing. Because I believed it because I'm a kid and children believe what adults tell them. So that short story that I'm doing there, I'm investigating a lot of that. But I'm also investigating, like I did study to be a psychotherapist and I adore psychotherapy. But it's about, are some people using therapy as just a, a more adult form of confession? You know, is it the same type of shit? Is it really effective or are you just going to confession? Are you going to your therapist because the therapist is telling you what you want to hear? Or are you actually working on yourself? You know what I mean? Even the format of like a traditional psychoanalytic session, it's a mm -hmm. confession and you don't look at the analyst, you're looking somewhere else. So it's not really there's a human mm -hmm. being that you're connecting with who's sort of guiding you through mm -hmm. your emotional experiences and how you're making sense of them. You're sort of confessing into the ether. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the the model of therapeutic confession was quite consciously modelled on yeah catholic confession yeah especially the 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 not looking like you don't see the priest in confession you don't see him and one thing i found interesting that i, I contrasted when you do confession um especially back in the days when there was a lot of people in the church you had to queue for when i when i did confession as a kid i queued with all the other members of my class so we're all quite openly queuing up to go into the box and there's something about that at least which is open. I'm here today because I've done some bad things and I need to go into this box and then God is go the priest is going to do some magic God shit. But with psychotherapy, a lot, when you go to a therapist, a lot of therapists make it real difficult for you to see other clients. You know, if you turn up to therapy, the therapist will often set up the schedule in such a way that the person who's been there before you has left. So you never see them. And that immediately sets up shame. Now, I understand some people are embarrassed about being at therapy. But when you go to therapy and the first feeling you get is, I don't know who else goes here because it's been set up so that you never find out. There's something shameful about that. And I find it ironic that that shame is present in therapy, but it's not present in confession where it's out in the open that everyone's going to confession. I mean, I, I was talking to my mum about um, therapy. So my mum, she was a social worker for very many years. So her her threshold for what she thinks requires 
intervention is you know is the child's life at stake no then everything's fine and it's that kind of funny thing that social workers have which is like a real disdain for therapy and I, I was talking to her about um about when I was doing therapy and she was like okay well the only the only form of therapy that I think's worth anything is is systemic family therapy where both yeah. um, imaginatively and literally it's sort of bringing everyone else into the room mm-hmm. and and the thing that sort of struck me about that was that People have ideas about therapy and what kinds of therapy works and what kind of therapy doesn't and and harbor suspicions of therapy based on some of the most deeply held values. So mm-hmm. some of my most deeply held values was that I was really frightened of a therapist um, cutting off my connection to other people and mm-hmm. my empathetic connection with other people. And because in all of my stories, of course, I'm right and everyone else is wrong, mm-hmm. this would get reinforced and I'd become less empathetic. From, from my mom. Mm-hmm her most deeply held values were about a sense of obligation towards other people. Mm-hmm. And so any form of therapy that was worth its salt had to bring in those other people and remind yeah. you of those obligations. You know, for you in terms of having trained as as a therapist and also having this interest in examining therapy, I guess what are the values for you that you want to see embodied in a particular therapeutic model and what are you worried about? with a therapeutic model. So the thing is, when I was trained to be a psychotherapist, like I didn't finish, I didn't qualify in it because my music career took off, but I, I almost qualified as a therapist. So I learned just enough to maintain, con- continually maintain an interest in it and use therapy for, for my own, for my own emotional well-being. And some, what, what was most effective for me was when I was training to be a therapist, I had to do a year of weekly group therapy. And what this was, was, would be kind of similar to an AA meeting. Like, it wasn't about addiction, but basically, me, I was about 21 at the time, so that's quite young. Me and a lot of other adults, and I mean people who would have been 50, 60, people 30, we all had to sit around and speak in a very raw way about our weeks and what we're feeling. And it was all about the safety of the group. Everything that's said in that group never leaves the group and it's about establishing trust and I had to be present while a 60 year old across from me was bawling crying you know crying about their week or divulging things about their life that they'd never told other people but they're divulging it now in the group because there's safety within the group and that was hugely important for me I became an adult in that moment because tears are a big one like, we we shame crying quite a bit. Like, when a person cries in front of us, sometimes the first thing we do is we reach for a tissue. And you think what you're doing there is you're helping the other person. But often when you reach for a tissue, what you're doing is trying to distract yourself from how uncomfortable it is that the other person is being that raw with their emotions. And what I had to learn in this group was to sit with another person's tears. For another person to be a full grown adult to be blubbering like a child and for me to mindfully sit with that and to be okay with it and to show them compassion and empathy and for me too then to cry in the presence of other people and to not have shame around that. So the group process there for me that was really transformative that really worked and it worked for me more so than one on one therapy. You know what I mean? Um, The question you asked was you know, what do I see as, as being 
teaching people how to emotionally regulate. I mean that 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 for me is is emotional regulation is 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 the ability and capacity to arrive at a base level of calm, you know. And not everybody has that ability, and our society certainly doesn't foster that ability in us, you know. So my, my, what I'm aiming for all the time is can can I skillfully emotionally regulate so that when stress comes at me in in life that I can as an adult go okay a stressful situation is happening but I'm calm enough now to think about this situation critically because if I'm not emotionally regulated and anger comes in or anxiety comes in now I'm being driven by irrational behavior and I, that just creates problems for me so how do we how do we teach everybody to emotionally regulate and that gets real complicated then when things like trauma are involved and that can mean the trauma of poverty you know some people experience the trauma of poverty and they can grow up in environments where there's very little emotional regulation at home because their parents can't pay any bills and they don't see calm happy behavior modeled to them because their parents are, have no situation where being calm and happy is an appropriate response. You know what I mean? So, even saying something like, oh, it'd be great if everyone was emotionally regulated, that's fine for me, where I had love and safety, but for other people it's not, you know? I mean, coming back to, I guess, one of the major themes of the book, which is this blurring of the distinction between human and animal. I mean, the classic dividing line is that humans have the capacity for reason mm -hmm. and animals don't mm -hmm. and if if we're talking about trauma being something which can rob us of our capacity for reason can rob mm -hmm. us of our capacity to emotionally regulate because you're so focused on survival mm -hmm. right you're 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 placed in an an animal state of mm -hmm. hyper alertness because something might take your life away from you one way or another. I mean, there's the way in which colonialism requires you to imagine that people aren't human so mm -hmm. that you can dominate and oppress and exploit them. But there's also a way in which colonialism, violence, constant traumatizing of whole populations does sort of put people in that animal state of alertness, of back against the wall, fight or flight, traumatic responses. I mean, it's it's one of those things that, like I, I, I when I when I speak about uh, colonization and colonialism, I, I always try and keep it about the, the Irish experience because that's what I know from my history. Now, I'm from the south of Ireland, so my stories of colonial trauma, they come from my granddad in the 1920s because the south of Ireland has been independent since the 1920s. But you speak to someone from the six counties in the north of Ireland and that community trauma is ongoing and recent, you know. So, something I always find fascinating but that the point that you made there about how colonization can create communities that will react in the way, in that, in that reactionary way. If you look at, we'll say, British propaganda from the 1970s about why British soldiers are, are present in the north of Ireland and you look at some of the, the cartoons, there's one particular cartoon which shows... Irish people, right? So it shows the Catholics and the Protestants both portrayed as monkeys effectively. 
and they're fighting with each other and throwing rocks. And then right in the centre, you've got a British soldier as a peacekeeper. And that right there is... Like, I often think about and wonder how sectarianism, sectarian violence, really benefited British power in the north of Ireland. Like, if you go in looking at the tactics of the British army in the early 1970s. So in the early 1970s, the British military set up a group, a a secret group called the Military Reaction Force. And the Military Reaction Force were like British soldiers who were plain clothes, highly secret. And their job was to go into civilian areas in the north of Ireland and just kill civilians discriminately for for no reason, just, just kill civilians. And you're left wondering, why the fuck would they do that? How does that make sense? And the reason they did it was to deliberately destabilise and, and create chaos. And you can read about this in... There was a British soldier called Frank Kitson. Frank Kitson wrote a manual that's freely available, a British military manual called Gangs and Counter Gangs. And this was based on what he had witnessed in, in, in Kenya with the Mau Mau. And... What Frank Kitson realised was, if you have a colonised state who want independence, well, the best thing to do is create chaos, create utter destabilisation. So then you have chaos and now the coloniser comes in as a peacekeeper. And I often think about that with the north of Ireland. And when I think about the images of, you've got Catholics and Protestants being portrayed as monkeys, throwing things at each other, and then the calm, sensible British soldier in the middle keeping peace you have perpetual chaos but no one asks the question of why is the soldier there and then the soldier goes I have to be here Paddy's aren't Paddy's insane they're kidding each other they're kidding each other they're animals you know what I mean the epigraph to the collection of short stories the section from the um, uh, Topographica Hibernica that you quote from um, it's it's this uh, you know Welsh writer saying you know the Irish have got all this land and they mm-hmm. don't even cultivate it. You know, yeah. they're, they're too barbarous to make the most of it. They know nothing about agriculture or husbandry. And this land is wasted on this barbarous, literally uncivilized people. And the thing that it really reminded me of is the language that's used often in relation to Palestine. Mm-hmm. So it took the Israelis to come along and make the desert bloom or something which I heard recently from an Israeli member of the Knesset was the Palestinians had an opportunity to make Gaza a little Singapore, yeah. but they wasted it because they were too bloodthirsty. And even last week, I don't know who it was who said it, but it was and it, it might have been Netanyahu, but he said these are animal people. I don't know was it Netanyahu, but it was someone. It was, it was Yoav Gallant. Yeah, these are animal people, and I couldn't believe that when I'd seen it, and I'm like. Okay, this is the same playbook that's been going back for a long, long time. Just make these people animals. You can do what you want. Do, do you feel a connection between the experience of Irish colonialism and, and what we're seeing in Palestine right now? Well, is there the, a sense of emotional pull? The solidarity between Ireland and Palestine, it, it's there in our culture. It is there in our culture. But when you go into the history of it, it's, it's, even though Ireland and Palestine are quite far apart, the shared history is, is very obvious. Like, I'll give you an example. Arthur Balfour. 
Arthur Balfour was a, he was British Prime Minister at, uh, I think, 1902. But Arthur Balfour used to be the Secretary of Ireland. And what Arthur Balfour did in Ireland was, in the late 1800s, we had a lot of peaceful resistance towards absentee landlords. Peaceful resistance towards these huge British landlords who owned all of the land and people were being evicted and people were in poverty. So in the late 1800s, Irish people decided, let's boycott these landlords. Let's have civil disobedience. Let's have rent strikes. And this was quite threatening the British power because if the Irish people were having a rebellion with pitchforks, then they're violent. You can come in and shoot them. But when the Irish people started peacefully not paying rent, then it made it difficult for British people, the, the British power to brutalise. So in Mitchellstown in Cork in 1889, I believe, there was one of these rent strikes and British forces massacred a bunch of people. And Balfour, who was the Secretary of Ireland, he said, this is OK. And then he made it illegal to peacefully protest and made it OK for Irish people to be shot if they're civilly disobedient. That same Balfour is the dude who wrote the Balfour Agreement of 1917 to set up mandatory Palestine as the home of Israel. Like another thing too is, and I see this a lot on, online with, with especially British liberals speaking about, imagine if Britain, imagine if Britain uh, collectively punished the people of Ireland for the actions of the IRA. Imagine if we had done that. And I see British liberals saying this as a way to almost have the upper hand to show that Britain traditionally had this restraint for Ireland. We never carpet bombed Dublin because of the IRA. And then we here in Ireland are going, that's not what happened at all. Like in the 1920s in Ireland, there was a force created by called the Black and Tans. Now the Black and Tans are hated in Ireland. They were created by a dude called Hamar Greenwood, who's actually Cara Delevingne's great-great-grandfather. But, uh... <laughs> Poor old Cara Delevingne. I, I just can't not bring it up when I say it. I feel bad because she seems like a lovely person. But sorry, Cara, your great grandfather did create the Black and Tans. But the Black and Tans were, they were a police force, but they were a militarized police force created by Hamar Greenwood and Winston Churchill. And the purpose of the Black and Tans in 1920s Ireland was to terrorize. They were a terrorist force. They weren't fighting the IRA who were looking for independence. The Black and Tans existed so that whenever the IRA killed British soldiers, the Black and Tans would then go and murder civilians. They would, they set fire to Cork City. They would randomly shoot people. The Black and Tans in 1922, because the IRA killed some British spies, the Black and Tans went into a football game and opened fire on the crowd of civilians and killed 14 people. So what you have there is British military, a force, collectively punishing the people. Then Ireland gets independence in 1922, the 26 counties. What do you think happens to the Black and Tans? What do you think happens to this force that terrorised people? Winston Churchill said, we don't need you to do with the paddy anymore. Go over to Palestine. So Winston Churchill got the Black and Tans who had collectively punished the Irish people and said, you got great practice there on the Irish. Go to mandatory Palestine, this new place where we're filling it with European Jewish people. And, and go and do to the Palestinian Arabs what you did there to the Irish people. So we have this real, like a literal shared history with Palestine, where the architects of, of mandatory Palestine, not just the 
Balfour Declaration of 1917, but also the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916, which Balfour had a hidden hand in. That's all kind of tied up. And I have a, I actually have a little quote here that I just happen to have. In this quote is from about, I think it's about 1924. So there was a dude called Ronald Storrs and he was the military governor of Palestine, the British military governor of Palestine. And what he said in the 1920s about mandatory Palestine is we're trying to create a little loyal Jewish Ulster in a sea of potentially hostile Arabism. So you have their British military power literally saying we just want to do what we did in the north of Ireland. That's exactly what we want to do. And then if you look at it more, it's like, why do you want to do that? Because if you look at the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916, the French and the British carved up the area of the Middle East, which used to be the Ottoman Empire, and are like, how can we carve this up for two things? One, oil is going to come, become pretty popular here in the 20th century. How do we get access to the oil? And then also, how do we carve this up in a way that it pisses everyone off? How do we create borders that literally create conflict? Why do you want to create conflict? Because then it's forever destabilised and we can just we can just take the oil because they're always going to be fighting because we just put a line through their land even though there's alliances there that have gone back thousands of years. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. And that connection between the colonialism in the global south and the colonialism that happened right on Britain's doorstep, our first real colonial experiment being Ireland. It was something which was um, part of the family story within my family. It was the interconnectedness between those things was something that was always sort of narrated and passed down. So my grandmother talked very often about how India had an IRA an Indian Republican army, which took its name from the Irish Republican army. There was a sense of affinity, which was born from experiences of state imposed famine, famine as a tool of colonial domination. The exact same shit. The same thing. Um, the Brits did the exact same thing. And for my grandmother, her father was imprisoned by the British for sedition during the mm -hmm. Bengal famine. And there was this real sense of the Irish were racialized as non-white for a very long mm -hmm. time. Of course, we we never got the opportunity to become white, but mm -hmm. let's see. Um, there, there was a sense of kinship. And I suppose sometimes it was a shock that when my grandmother came to this country and she was 17, there were a lot of Irish people who she met and that kinship was alive and it was mm -hmm. there and the bonds of solidarity, but there was an awful lot of racism. Yeah. And I think she felt sort of wounded, wounded by the lack of sort of, you know, the, that, that sense of affinity wasn't always returned. It's, it's an interesting thing now where like Irish people are now like fully white in, in this, like, we were not considered white at one point, one point, but, but within the within the social construct of racism, we now have full whiteness. When and it's important for us as as to be people who have full whiteness, but also this long history of colonization, to kind of use that to genuinely speak up. And we are seeing a bit of that now. I just see it with fucking like on TikTok. There's so many people of color in America 
going, holy fuck, what are these Irish people doing? How come there's so many white people here standing up for Palestine? And they're really seeing it as quite strange. And the Irish, we are kind of standing out as quite different to other Western nations and European nations as going, actually, no, you need to, what's happening there in Gaza isn't right. And it's so important for us as Irish people to not lose that. That That's part of, like, there's a wonderful woman called Bernadette Devlin McCalliskey. And Bernadette Devlin was, she was one of the organizers of, like, the Bloody Sunday March. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman. I had her on my podcast. Bernadette, in 1973, was given the key to New York City by Irish Americans. So the Irish Americans in the 1970s were quite supportive of the struggle, as they called it, in, in Northern Ireland. And Bernadette went over to New York and was given the key of the city by the Irish Americans. And what she did is she went up to Harlem and she gave it to the Black Panthers. And the Irish Americans went fucking apeshit. And Bernadette turned around and said, you Irish Americans, you're treating black and brown people in America the exact same way that I'm getting treated back home in Ireland. And they didn't like it one bit. But it was a wonderful thing that Bernadette did there because she had an opportunity to absorb herself into the Irish-American system, the whiteness that Irish-Americans had achieved. And she said, actually, no, no, it's about more than that, you know. And Sinead O'Connor was a great person for that, too. Sinead O'Connor really used her platform for solidarity like that and to call out injustice as she saw it. And even even things like platforming, she had MC Light on a record in 1987, which for a white, huge, huge white artist in 1987 to have a black female rapper on a track prominently displayed in 1987. Now it seems normal. Back then it was not normal. It was career suicide. But Sinead did it. I think it was either the MTV Awards or the VMAs. Sinead O'Connor went with the public enemy symbol shaved into her head because their performance was the only one that wasn't going to be televised. Absolutely. And like we have a lot of, like just here in Limerick City where I am, there's a plaque for the abolitionist Frederick Douglass on the wall because Fre- Frederick Douglass, uh, he, he was an African-American abolitionist in around the 1840s, I believe. He visited Ireland and he visited Ireland and did a speaking tour with a dude called Daniel O'Connell. And Daniel O'Connell is the Irish... We, he's our great emancipator. We call him our emancipator. And in Ireland, we used to call Frederick Douglass the Black O'Connell. But the reason that Frederick Douglass came to Ireland in the 1840s was Irish people in the 1840s, this was the height of the famine, you know, uh, half our population was dying. Irish people had never seen a black person. Irish people didn't know what the system of racism was. They lived in Ireland, dark poor, couldn't read. There wouldn't have been TVs, nothing. So Frederick Douglass came to Ireland to speak to all these poor Irish and to say to them, I know that a load of ye are going to go to America and you're going to immigrate there within the next year. What I want to say to you is when you get to America, there's going to be people who look like me and the people who look like me are under a system called slavery. And when you get to America, you need to make sure that people who look like me are who you align with and not necessarily the people at the top who are effectively British people. And it was a plea that O'Connell and Frederick Douglass had to the Irish people. And Daniel O'Connell then said to them, if you go to America and support the system of slavery, don't consider yourself Irish anymore. And when the Irish did get to America, 
they didn't. They, they, they fucked up. The, the Irish... Like, when the Irish first got to New York in the slums, they were not seen as, as, as white people and they were put in the, in the same... They lived alongside African-American freed slaves and you, from that you get things like tap dancing. Like, tap dancing is a literal mix of Irish dancing and the African shuffle. Sometimes you get words like African-American people will say, you dig, you dig me. And dig means understand, but the Irish word for understand is on digging to. So there's that weird little shared history at the very start. But then what happened with the American Civil War? A lot of poor Irish people from New York were being drafted to go and fight for the Union against the South in the Civil War. And the Irish in, in, in New York didn't like this. They were like, we have to fight. That I'm just after coming from Ireland. I'm escaping genocide at home. And now I have to fight to free these slaves. So what did the Irish in New York do? They lynched their black neighbours. And the Irish very quickly in America violently turned against their black neighbours and they they killed them and brutalised them. The other thing that Irish people did is if you look at early minstrel acts, a lot of minstrels, like black and uh, blackface minstrels, they, they were Irish people. And the reason they were Irish was their next door neighbour was black. They're living in the same neighbourhoods. So Irish people used racism either through minstrelism or the violence of actually being violent towards their black neighbour they used this to achieve the approval of wealthy people who are descended from Germans British people and Dutch they achieved their whiteness through violence there's a wonderful wonderful book about this called How the Irish Became White by Noel Ignatiev it's a brilliant book about that history I mean, there's there's also an incredible book by uh, David Rodiger, The Wages of Whiteness, The Psychological Wages of Whiteness. And so when you are working class, when you're impoverished and you're white, the only compensation that you're going to get, I mean, you're better off materially than black people, but not, not always by much. It's the psychological compensation of seeing someone worse off than you, someone who is less dignified, less protected by the state, more worthy of disdain, more, more prone to being held up as, a, as an object of, of ridicule. And I suppose if you're Irish and a lot of those dynamics, it's not just material impoverishment, it's also a form of racism. For there to be a, you know, less human form of life, you know, even more donkey than the donkey. You, it's the Big time. the movement of of revulsion of I'm not you, and let me show how not you I am. Yes, and and it's it's not just the story of the Irish in 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 America. That same stuff happened in the Caribbean. Like, if you listen to a person from Barbados speaking, they sound like me. You know, the the the, the Southern Irish accent and the a lot of the Caribbean accent is very similar, and the reason for that is is in the 1600s and 1700s, Irish people were forcibly transported to the Caribbean, to the British colonies, as indentured servants, where they would have worked alongside African chattel slaves. And then the Irish kind of just became overseers and then became the slave owners. You know what I mean? So that we always, when we went abroad latched onto that little system of whiteness that didn't exist in Ireland, but one, it was dangled there like a carrot and took that, you know? I mean, to sort of, you know, wrap this up by bringing us to the starting point of our discussion, 
Do you see a connection between learning this kind of history and being able to look at it in an, in an unflinching way and that process of becoming an adult, in your words, of becoming reflective and empathetic and insightful? Definitely, because my fascination with history is that it, it, it feels like empathy through time. Like I, I always look at history as a way to understand the now. Like shit is, it, it's like we said there, when we, 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 the Israeli official who said that we are dealing with animal people. And I'm speaking about a document from the 1100s about the colonization of Ireland. And, and that's how the Irish people are being spoken about, you know, dehumanization and comparing people to animals as justification for doing whatever you want. That's not new. It's always there. So the thing is with nowness, anytime stuff's happening right now, it's very confusing. It's, there's always a shimmer of confusion and there's all these conflicting narratives. But the thing with history is when you have enough distance, it's sometimes a little bit easier to comprehend when you look back, when you have the benefit of hindsight. So that's why I, that's why I love history. I love history because through empathy, through time, it gives me a calmer way to think about now rather than guess. Jesus Christ, you know, it's so confusing right now. It's so confusing to know what to think. There's so many different messages, you know, and I just need to ground myself and history helps me to ground myself. Uh, I wish I could do more of that. I feel engaging with the news cycle makes me a, a worse person. It makes Less you cynical? Reflective, more reactive. Oh, no, yeah, I'm not yeah, cynical. I, I think, I think stupider. Mm -hmm. Less reasonable. What well, one thing I'd love to speak about and, and I don't see people speaking about it enough is like so much of discourse and so much of news is now on social media and something that I have a real issue with is so I try to I, I kind of avoid talking about serious things on social media I used to but I kind of avoid it now and the reason I avoid it is that I think well I don't think I know Social media is, is created by billionaires, right? As a platform, not for us to have meaningful, empathic discussion, but it's created so that only high, high arousal emotions are brought up in us. Like that's literally the purpose. So any discussion that's happening on social media, it, the, the platform itself makes it turn and response combat. You know, like if you, you can't have an argument with someone on Twitter. It's just not possible because it's immediate turn and response combat and then points are awarded for how good your response is immediately you're not thinking empathically it's like trying to argue with someone after you've just had a fender bender in a car your emotions are too high and the more angry we get on social media and the more reactive we are the more money is earned by social media companies through our data so should we be having these important conversations on social media it's like Imagine billionaires said, you can have a discussion about Palestine, right? But you have to be on a tightrope balancing while you're doing it. Can you do that? That's a bit what like social media is like. It's not a real discussion. It's everything is framed in turn and response combat and, and, and polarization. So do you contest that space or do you step back from it and say, <sighs> I use it for sharing, fucking, I, I, I sh sharing music and photographs of cats. That, that, that's what I like about social media, but I don't think it's an, I, I, I won't be fighting with anyone about Israel and Palestine on, on Twitter. That's just not happening, you know? Um, 
I, I think the space is set up for failure. The space is set up for combat. And I, I think that we sounds should, wise. We should look that at it more. That sounds wise. And I think what I'm going to take from it is that I'm going to post more pictures of my cat. Yeah, absolutely. But there's the other wonderful thing about animals, Ash. Even mm. in the digital space, like if you think of a timeline, you've got all this horrifying, traumatizing stuff. And then a lovely little cat comes onto your timeline and you feel good for two seconds and then there's more horror. I, th- I think having having the real cat in my house has been That's better. the yeah. only way I can do this job because oh, he's there yeah. and he's just a sort of warm ball mm. of kind of like constant undulating movement. I understand so I adore cats. I understand completely. I, I'm fascinated by them. They're so Com- loving and even the little, just being able to give him a little bit of food be, be, being able to give a cat a dinner or, or a bit of milk and just seeing the pleasure that they have, they're wonderful. They're wonderful. And cats are fantastic. Even more, I, I don't want to put cats, there's me with the social media brain. I don't want to put cats and dogs against each other. But I think cats are, they're very, very good at helping us to be calm and emotionally uh, regulated. They're purring. Not pitting cats against dogs, but the difference is that a dog will fulfill your need for unconditional love and a dog will look at you and with its eyes, it will be telling you, I will die when you die. Mm-hmm. There is no life for me without you. Mm-hmm. Whereas a cat, you can love a cat completely, but there will always be a mystery at the heart of it. Yeah. And you have to accept that if you're going to love a cat. Just one last point, because it's just a fascinating thing about cats. Um, like, so we've, dogs have been domesticated. First off, dogs aren't real, right? Now, they're not because there's wolves. <coughs> wolves are real. But dogs aren't real. Dogs are things that humans created out of friendly wolves like 50,000 years ago. And when humans were hunter-gatherers, that's when these dogs started becoming a thing. But cats didn't give a fuck about us. Cats are quite capitalistic. Cats started to live amongst humans when we discovered surplus. When humans stopped being hunter-gatherers and we started to have towns, when we had towns, then we had surplus. We had too much of shit. We had, there's a grain silo over there with too much grain. And then you have all these rats trying to steal the grain. And then cats, who are usually solitary, started hanging around in packs. So cats have only been, they've only been, I wouldn't even call them domesticated. They've only lived alongside us for 10,000 years. Whereas dogs, that's like 50,000 years. So with a cat... They're, they're still wild and even and I explored this in the book a wild cat doesn't meow in adulthood only a domesticated cat meows because they've learned how to mimic the sound of a human baby you know they 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 know how to manipulate mm-hmm. you so they meow because that's what kittens do for attention and mm-hmm. then adult cats learn to become silent because they have to be predators whereas what cats have understood is that in adulthood they have to mimic a parent-child relationship yeah. in order to extract food, shelter, care, protection from humans. Although, do you want to know something interesting? Go There's on, a please. theory that foxes are beginning to self-domesticate <gasps> yeah. in the way that cats did. Have you seen the Russian foxes? Have you seen the, those Russian foxes that they tried to, mes- to domesticate over 60 years and they're effectively turning into dogs? No. Yeah, so they, they did this experiment. I think if you just look up Russian domesticated foxes. So this dude on a farm like 80 years ago started to domesticate foxes. 
But now they don't look like foxes anymore. They look like dogs. And they're learning about the domestication of dogs through the domestication of these, these foxes. That they're starting to develop these faces that are much more friendly or inhuman-like in the way that dogs are. The, the other thing, I have a cat out in my back garden at the moment. Now she's, she's feral, like as in, I can never fully domesticate her because she arrived to me feral. So I can never touch her or anything, but there's still a relationship. We slow blink and stuff. But I've been real busy recently because of promoting this book and I haven't been feeding her as much. She's getting fed, but she's not getting the odd treat. And what she started doing the past week is she comes up to the window and presents she's got a sore paw. She doesn't have a sore paw at all. So she's feigning injury to get extra attention because she's noticing I'm not giving it to her, which is amazing. <laughs> intelligence. The intelligence of cats. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really wish that Navarra Media could just pivot to being a full-time cat content channel. But unfortunately, we, we committed to this whole like political commentary thing. Did you ever hear about the glowing cats at, or uh, Ash? Did you ever hear about the glowing cats? No? Glow cats? No. I, I, I just keep having to tell you interesting shit, right? But... Do you ever hear of long-term nuclear warning messages? No. Tell me so about them. When you're storing nuclear waste, it doesn't, it's still dangerous in like 10,000 years. So when scientists are burying nuclear waste, they literally have to think, what, what if someone finds this in 10,000 years? What is civilization going to be like in 10,000 years? Will it even be humans? We have to bury this nuclear waste. So what do we do to communicate to a civilization in 10,000 years don't fuck with this shit. It's dangerous. So they had to hire a bunch of people to figure out how do you communicate in 10,000 years? And one suggestion that was made, it was by a folklorist, was to genetically engineer cats so that they glow in the presence of nuclear waste. But not only to genetically engineer cats, do it and then create folklore songs and religions about the dangers of glowing cats in the hope that these stories will last 10,000 years. So 10,000 years in the future, someone will see a cat that's glowing. They won't know why they're scared of it. They'll just know this is bad and I don't know why. In the way that I'm in Ireland and I'm scared of spiders. I've no reason to be scared of spiders in Ireland. But I know that an ancestor of mine three million years ago had a good reason to be scared of fucking spiders. And it just <coughs> exists in me. So they want to engineer that with glowing cats. Oh my God. Isn't that mad? Oh my God. Long-term it's nuclear so waste. Mad. you got to look that up. Long-term nuclear waste um, warning systems. It's one of the most fascinating things in the world. I will look it up. Um, i got to let you go, go now, up, Ash. I'm sorry. I keep keeping you with boy, interesting thank facts. Thank you so much for joining us. All thank right. you so much for joining us. And I really feel that this is one of those interviews where we really have travelled all the way from like... M&M to <laughs> dogs not being real via Israel-Palestine and glowing cats. I um, love doing that. They're the best chats. Um, thank you so, so much for joining thank us. Thank you, Ash. All right. Dog bless. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarra Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences.